You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thank you, Tim. Today's reading comes from John 17, 6 to 26. Jesus said, I have revealed you to those whom you have get. I'll start again. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who have you have given me, for they are yours, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you were in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, I think the live stream's on today, so hi to anyone who's watching. Uh, if they're away for the long weekend, and thanks to those who are here on the long weekend uh, to gather with God's people. It's good to be together. Uh, if you're visiting today, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC, and it's a real joy to be looking at the rest of John 17. So please do have your Bibles open. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Tim referred to earlier. You can find it via the Sundays tab on the church website. If you find sermon outlines useful, uh, then you can look that up. Uh, but let me pray for us. Um, please join me in prayer. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, uh, well, I pray that you would, you would help me to speak faithfully. Is that my feelings? Sorry, I'm just a bit distracted. Uh, anyway, 
Please pray for me. Uh, gracious Father, um, we pray that Felix would find Gabby. Uh, we pray you'd help me to be uh, concentrating on the task at hand and um, help me to speak faithfully and clearly. Uh, help us to be attentive to your word and to receive it with uh, humility uh, and a willingness uh, to hear it and to trust it and to be changed by it. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I do wonder how you feel when someone says, I'll be praying for you. It's a pretty common thing that we say to one another in and around Christian community, I'll be praying for you. I can remember a time, at least one time, when someone said, to that, uh, said those words to me and I knew that I, I should have kind of felt encouraged and comforted and thankful that someone was saying that they would pray for me. Uh, but the truth was I actually felt a bit discouraged. I was thinking, I think it was because I felt like it was a little bit of a Christian-sounding way uh, of fobbing me off. They didn't really seem to want to listen to me and understand what I was going through. Uh, and so they're just kind of like, oh, I'll be praying for you. I actually wasn't convinced that they would be praying for me or that they really wanted to. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. How do you feel when someone says, I'll be praying for you? Now, of course, most of the time when someone says that to me, I feel really encouraged. I know that uh, they, they genuinely mean it. Uh, usually they've taken some time to understand at least something about what I'm going through. And there's some kind of context where I understand that they're praying for my good, that they love me and they want what's best for me, for my good and for God's glory. I wonder how you feel when someone says, I'll be praying for you. I start in this way, but because in John chapter 8, oh sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, uh, is at God's right hand and is also interceding for us. It's what Alicia touched on in the kids' spot just before. It's a pretty incredible reality, isn't it? Take a moment to set that in, uh, kind of let that settle into your mind. Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, who is now at God's right hand, Jesus Christ, God's son himself, is at this moment praying for you. If you're a Christian, praying for me. I wonder how you feel when Jesus says, I'll be praying for you. I am praying for you. We see the beginnings of these prayers that Jesus is making for us in John chapter 17. It's why John chapter 17 as a whole, I kind of forgot to mention this last week, but it's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. That's only important to the extent that it helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is doing here. In the Old Testament, the high priest of Israel would represent God's people, Israel, before God and would pray to God on their behalf particularly before offering sacrifices for their sins. And so that's what we have here in John chapter 17. Jesus is being, is acting out like our ultimate high priest, the one through whom we come into relationship with God. He's representing us before God. He's praying to God, his Father, on our behalf, right before he offers a sacrifice of his own life for our sins, not for his own sins. 
This reality that Jesus is praying for us. And this wonderful glimpse that we get of what Jesus might be praying for us in John chapter 17 should offer us comfort and joy as we live our lives in this world. That's my kind of big idea for today, this reality that Jesus is praying for us and this glimpse that we get of what Jesus might be praying for us in John 17 should offer us comfort and joy as we live our lives in this world where it's often messy, where we often feel hurt, where we often feel discouraged. So please have John uh, chapter 17 open. First, in in verses 6 to 19, uh, Jesus prays for his 11 apostles. Uh, These are the kind of 11 core disciples that Jesus spent three years with uh, during his time, his earthly ministry. Here they are sharing their final meal, uh, the Passover meal in Jerusalem. Uh, And Jesus prays for his apostles in verses 6 to 19. Uh, In verses 6 to 10, uh, he makes clear exactly why it is that he's praying for them. Or verses 6 to 11, I should say. Uh, So if you look at verses 6 to 10, Jesus says first that uh, he's praying for his apostles because his father gave them to him and therefore they belong to his father. He knows that his apostles are precious to God his father. That's why he's praying for them. Uh, So if you take a look at verse 6. As Jesus says there in verse 6, I have revealed you to those uh, whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, They were yours. You gave them to me. uh, And they have obeyed your words. So Jesus is saying, if you take the different parts of verse 6, that he has revealed his father to his apostles. Uh, Literally, if you look at the little footnote that you might have on the welcome card or in your Bible, it probably says an alternative is revealed the name of his father to his apostles. Uh, We've seen throughout John's gospel uh, that the name of God, the name of God the Father, is the full glory of who God is. His grace, his truth, his mercy, his compassion, his justice, all of which is fully revealed in Jesus, God's Son. Uh, So Jesus is saying, Father, I've revealed the glory of who you are to these apostles. Now, why is it that Jesus revealed the glory of his Father to the apostles? Notice what's not in verse 6. It's not because they were more spiritually open than the other people in first century Palestine. It's not that they uh, kind of were the, the guns in kind of religious performance in the local synagogue. It's not that they were influential and high flyers. Why is it that Jesus has revealed his Father's glory to the apostles? It's because the Father gave them to him. And Jesus is clear that it was the Father's right to give them to him. Why? Because they were his. Notice that in verse 6. This is all pretty mind-blowing stuff. We're kind of getting drawn into the the relationship between the father and the son before the world began. I get that. It's kind of blow-your-mind kind of stuff. But what's Jesus saying? He's saying that before the world began, his father in his free and amazing grace chose to set his affection, his love, upon the 11 apostles who he's sharing this meal with in Jerusalem. He freely chose before they had any chance to be good performers or bad performers in their life. They weren't even born. He freely chose that they would be his, that they would be his precious children who would see his glory as God the Father 
And therefore he gave them to Jesus, his son, and said, reveal my glory to them. And how did they come to see the glory? Jesus says it's by hearing Jesus' words and obeying his words, trusting and obeying the words that the father gave to Jesus. So in verse 7, Jesus says, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. The apostles don't understand everything about Jesus. We've seen that in John's Gospel. They still don't really get that Jesus is a king who has to give his life on the cross, for example. That doesn't really compute with their understanding of God's king. But here in verse 7, Jesus is saying what they do understand is that I have come from you and that therefore everything I have said and done also comes from you. That's verse 7. So in verse 8, Jesus zooms in on his words in particular. Uh, He says, For I gave them the words, not just any words that Jesus came up with, uh, but the words that you gave me. And they accepted them. They, uh, they uh, They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus' apostles have come to believe that Jesus has come from God the Father and that all the words Jesus speaks also come from God the Father. So in verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. That's for the apostles. I'm not praying for uh, the world, but for those, notice the theme again, for those you have given me, for they are yours. Why is Jesus praying for his apostles? Because he knows that the apostles belong to his father, that they are his, they're precious to him. It matters to his father what happens to the apostles. Uh, Of course, uh, the the trinity that we believe in as Christians, uh, we believe in one God in three persons, one God who's perfectly united. Uh, So to belong to God the father is to, also belong, uh, is to also belong to Jesus, his son, which is what Jesus is getting at in verse 10. Where Jesus says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. Why Jesus is being clear that in talking about the apostles belonging to the father, it's not like they don't belong to him. The father and the son share everything. To belong to the Father is also to belong to Jesus. And notice in verse 10 that as those who belong to Jesus, what have the apostles done? They have brought glory to Jesus. They've honoured and praised Jesus as he deserved. Jesus says, and glory has come to me through them. Jesus prays for his apostles because he's profoundly aware that his apostles belong to his Father and that his father gave them to him. And he also prays for them, verse 11, because he knows he's leaving the world soon to return to his father. Notice verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. It's a pretty incredible moment. Imagine you're sharing a meal with someone. Uh, They've been talking for quite some time. Uh, as you've been sharing the meal about how they're going to be departing the world soon, trying to prepare you for that reality. And then towards the end of the meal, they stand up and say this extended prayer for the very people who are present in the meal. 
Right, Jesus, it's like his heart is being moved, uh, confronted again with the reality that he'll soon be leaving these apostles who he's sharing this meal with. He's moved to pray for them. He knows the challenges that they're going to face as they live their lives in the world once he leaves them. Uh, so in verses 11 to 16, he prays that his apostles might be safe. Right, notice in the next part of verse 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, Protect them, protect the apostles by the power of your name. Again, you might see in the footnote, I don't reference the footnotes very often, but a couple of times they're useful in this passage. Uh, in the footnote, you might see that it says it can either be protect them by the power of your name or protect them in your name, or, which is the footnote might say to keep them faithful to your name or keep them protected within your name. That's a little bit confusing for us, but if we remember that God's name is the kind of fullness of who he is, right? it's making visible uh, his invisible glory. That's God's name. It's made visible in Jesus, his son. Uh, and so Jesus is saying uh, to his father, please protect the apostles uh, kind of within the boundaries of all that I've shown them about you. Keep them safe within that. Uh, it's why Jesus says, again, it's a little bit confusing, he says that his father um, uh, gave him the name. You see that in verse 10? Jesus, his father, this is the name that you gave me, which is a little bit strange. It's not like Jesus came known as father or something. Like, What's he talking about? I think he's saying that the name here is about God's glory and the father gave the, full, his, the fullness of his glory to the son and the son has given that to the world. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And notice the result. Like Jesus wants his apostles to be kept faithful within the kind of bounds of everything he's shown them about God. And he hopes that the result of that is so that they might be one as we are one. And notice that, that Jesus isn't just concerned that the apostles would be kind of faithful to Jesus as individuals. His prayer actually is that they would be one as a group, that they would remain faithful together, deeply united in everything that Jesus has shown them. And Jesus knows that that's going to be really important because of what follows here. Uh, let me find my spot. Uh, because of verse 12, they've got to remain faithful together because uh, Jesus says, while I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe. By that name that you gave me, right? Jesus made sure they stayed on the straight and narrow spiritually, so to speak. They stayed walking in line with the truth that he was revealing to them. Uh, none, therefore, have been lost, except the one who was doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas, of course. Uh, Judas was always destined to betray Jesus. You might have questions about that. Uh, there's been a couple of sermons earlier in this series uh, I could direct you to. Don't have time to dive into that today. Uh, but Jesus he knows he's returning to his father uh, and he knows, uh, and so he's praying that his father would keep his apostles safe. And not just safe. Or notice what it is in verse 13, uh, that Jesus is kind of conscious he's going to keep them safe. It's finding joy in Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus prays. He wants his disciples to experience the full measure 
of his joy. So it's not just a, a kind of gritted teeth, I'll persevere in following Jesus, like type faithfulness that Jesus is praying for. He's praying that his disciples would experience this fullness of joy. We talked about it back in John 15, the joy that's found in being deeply connected with Jesus, who there in John 15 is pictured as the true vine, the source of all life and blessing and everything good. And Jesus says to be deeply connected with him and to remain in his love is to experience fullness of joy. That's what Jesus wants for his apostles. And he knows that they need to experience this oneness with one another and they need to know the depths of his love and they need to know his joy because, verse 14, lots of other people don't like them. Notice verse 14. I have given them your word uh, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Christianity often has kind of bad news and good news together. The good news is that in believing the words that the Father, God the Father, gave to Jesus his Son, uh, the apostles now belong to God the Father. They're precious to him. He loves them. The bad news is that in believing the words that God the Father gave to Jesus his Son, they're now hated by the world. Because this world is no longer their home. They don't belong to the world anymore. Their home is with God the Father in heaven, their ultimate home. So they're hated just as Jesus is hated. So in verses 15 and 16, Jesus prays again, Please, Father, keep them safe. My prayer, Father, is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Notice what kind of safety and protection Jesus is praying for. His concern isn't so much that his apostles would be kept physically safe, that they'd avoid suffering or persecution or people calling them bad names for the sake of following Jesus. Like Those things can be painful, I'm I'm sure Jesus doesn't wish those things upon his apostles. But in the end, all the apostles do lose their lives for the sake of following Jesus. What's his main concern? His main concern is their spiritual safety. That's why he prays that they would be protected from the evil one. That's the devil, uh, earlier in John, called the prince of this world, Satan, are the one who we were told had planted an evil, greedy desire in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And Jesus is praying that his father would stop that happening for the other apostles. And that his father would protect them from the evil one who would seek to lure them away from him and stop them walking faithfully with him. Right? Jesus prays that his apostles might be safe. And secondly, in verses 17 to 19, he prays that they might be sanctified. Notice verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, The word sanctified doesn't get a lot of good press. It doesn't get used much these days. And when it does, it's usually sanctimonious. You know, you're so sanctimonious. It's not not a very positive thing. Uh, But Jesus seems to think it would be a good thing uh, for his apostles to be sanctified. And not that they'd become sanctimonious, 
Uh, the word uh, sanctified, uh, you could say a, a definition is, uh, it means to set apart someone or something as belonging to a particular person for a particular purpose. Uh, so my, my friend Adam, uh, who was up here earlier, the kind of co-pastor co here, uh, he has often said, uh, I'll use it, I'll personalise it, uh, my toothbrush at home is sanctified to me. Right? In the sense that it has been set apart as belonging to me and to me alone uh, for the purpose of brushing my teeth and my teeth alone. Uh, this has been tested recently. Uh, I have an electric toothbrush and my son, Charlie, uh, who's uh, seven, is very excited about trying the electric toothbrush. And I'm trying to teach him that you have to change the, the heads, you know. Anyway, uh, and so this is an issue of cleanness and uncleanness. Like, is the toothbrush actually sanctified to me? Anyway, that, you get the idea. This is the word sanctified. Something has been set apart as belonging to someone for a particular purpose. And Jesus here is praying that his apostles might be sanctified. Uh, in a sense, they're already sanctified. In, he already said back in verses 8 and 9 uh, that by believing his words, they belong to his father. They don't belong to the world. They've already been set apart. Uh, but here Jesus is praying that his apostles would remain sanctified that they would keep living lives that show that they belong to God the Father, not to the world, and that they are children of God, and that therefore they want to bear the likeness of being in God's family. They want to become more and more like God their Father in heaven. And that's who they belong to, and the purpose of it is in verses 18 and 19. Notice the purpose, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world... Uh, so I have sent them into the world. Uh, for them I sanctify myself, uh, that they too may be truly sanctified. Uh, back in John 10, uh, you can look it up later on, I think it's about verse 36, the father said that he had sanctified Jesus his son, uh, and he said that he sanctified him to send him into the world for the mission of giving his life on the cross. Here, Jesus is saying, now I sanctify myself for my people. I willingly set my life aside for the mission that's before me, giving my life on the cross. And he's praying that his apostles would be sanctified, set apart for their mission of going into the world and sharing the good news about Jesus and living lives that show that they belong to Jesus. Right? Jesus prays that his apostles might be safe and sanctified. And as much as these are prayers that uh, obviously are first and foremost for his apostles, uh, I think they could reasonably give us a glimpse of the sort of things that Jesus could be praying for us too. I think Jesus still cares about us being spiritually safe. Praying to his father, please protect them from anything, that, that any kind of spiritual danger or threat uh, that might drag them away from me, that might cause them to doubt my goodness, that might lead them to throw in the towel on following Jesus. Jesus is praying those sort of prayers for us. I don't know the exact words, but he sure does want us to be safe. And he wants us to be sanctified praying that we would live lives that show that we are children of God the Father, deeply loved by him, and so we want our lives to look like God the Father, to be holy as he is holy, as it says. 
That's all by God's grace and we bumble our way along. But there's a desire to be more and more like our loving Heavenly Father. But Jesus doesn't just pray for his apostles. He also prays for people like us. Notice verse 20. Jesus says, my prayer is not just for them alone. It's not just for the apostles alone. I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message. It's pretty clear Jesus doesn't just pray for his immediate apostles, but for everyone around the world who would ultimately believe in him, believe in Jesus through the true message, the true words that he has given the apostles. And notice what Jesus hopes is the result of all these people around the world believing the true message of the apostles. He prays that we would be one, that we would be one, which maybe raises questions for you, especially considering how many Christian churches and denominations there are around the world. I know some of you are newish to church, and, and it's not uncommon for me to have conversations with people kind of like, where does Presbyterians fit in? There's so many different, so many different churches. So what do we make of Jesus' prayer? Did, did God the Father kind of not answer Jesus' prayer? Because it seems like maybe we're not so much one. Well, that's a pretty complicated question. I've thrown it out there. You can chat about it after church in your gospel communities. Uh, one thing that might help, I, it's helped me at least a little bit, is remembering that, that Jesus is not praying that all professing Christians around the world uh, would be one, would be united, uh, no matter what they believe. Right? He's praying, you notice in verse 20 and 21, uh, that those who have believed the true message of the apostles would be united. And he's praying, not necessarily, I think that we would be united in that we'd be part of the same local church because that would be like a really big local church and we live in different parts of the world, right? So there's a natural kind of geographical separation. He's also not praying necessarily that we would be united in all aspects of truth. Like there might be some slightly different emphases on secondary matters within what the apostles taught. Uh, He's also uh, not saying we have to be united in that we all have to want to worship God in exactly the same way. There are some people who believe the true message of the apostles like a pipe organ and a choir and other people like a more contemporary form of music. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we're not united. We still recognise the fact that we're united in believing the same core truths that Jesus taught the apostles and that the apostles wrote down in the Bible and that we have come to believe. In that sense, you could say that we are one, just as Jesus prayed. You might have more questions about that. That's fine. Uh, But that's what Jesus prays, that his people would be united. Uh, In verse 21, he continues along similar lines. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, uh, uh, may they also be in us, uh, so that the world may believe Uh, that you have sent me. So Jesus doesn't just want us to be united, to be one with one another. He he wants us to be united with God himself. Notice that, to be in God. 
that's a kind of weird thing, but what, throughout John's Gospel we've seen this repeated desire that God's children uh, would be united with God the Father through the work of Jesus his Son by the power of God the Spirit. We are in God, one with God, united with God and with one another. And, and Jesus, you notice there in verse 21, uh, he prays that our oneness with God and with one another would be so distinctive uh, in a world that is increasingly kind of polarised and divided uh, that people around us would say the only possible explanation for this group of people being united with one another is that God the Father really did send his Son into the world. You see that at the end of verse 21. So that they may be, the world may believe that you have sent me. Like this is the only thing that could, could explain this strange unity that these people share. Uh, verse 22, the Father sent Jesus into the world to uh, give us his glory, to show us his glory. We've kind of already covered that. But notice again the, uh, the purpose of Jesus showing the Father's glory to the world. It's that we might be one as Jesus and his Father are one. So verse 23, Jesus prays that just as his, he and his Father are united perfectly in love and truth, he prays that we too might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know uh, that you sent me uh, and have loved me even as you have loved, or loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus prays that we as his people might be united in truth, in the true message of the apostles, and in love, in loving community and relationships with one another. And may God the Father answer this prayer of Jesus his Son even today in the coming weeks, in the rest of the life of DPC, that we as a church might be increasingly united in truth and love, being brought towards complete unity. Now, the fact that Jesus is praying about this suggests that this is something that, that God does in our midst by the power of his spirit, and that's absolutely true. Uh, but also, elsewhere in the New Testament, we are called to do what we can, to maintain and strengthen our unity. And I think that is really, really hard. It's hard to do, uh, to maintain and strengthen our unity, uh, perhaps first, because we often uh, irritate one another by our different personalities and preferences. It's just kind of irritations, frustrations. It's hard because we hurt one another. Uh, all of us, including me, are careless, we're foolish, we make mistakes. All of us are sinners. We sin against one another. So it's hard to maintain and strengthen unity. It's hard because sometimes we get bitter and, and frustrated with one another because we just can't see why other people don't say and do things in the way that we're just really convinced is the right way to say and do things. So in the midst of all that, how are we supposed to maintain and work together to maintain and strengthen our unity as a church? I certainly don't have all the answers for that. I've got three thoughts that I find helpful and, and maybe 
uh, maybe that you might find them helpful. Uh, the first thought uh, is that uh, when I'm irritated uh, by a, a brother or sister, uh, I sometimes helpful. I don't always remind myself of this. I'm not kind of some superhuman who's always preaching God's word to myself. But I have sometimes reminded myself that that brother or sister who's annoying me belongs to the same father as me. Uh, that before the world began, God the Father chose them to be his. He loved them. He set his affection upon them. They were precious to him. And so we belong to the same father. That sometimes stirs up in me a desire to keep relating and maintaining and strengthening unity with a brother or sister. Uh, the second thing that sometimes helps when a, a brother or sister perhaps has hurt me or wounded me, uh, again, I'm not perfect at this, but trying to remember that the blood of the Lord Jesus, God's son, was shed for their sins too, not just mine. Which is absolutely not to say that uh, forgiveness is a really easy thing, that it should be really quick. Like I know that sins can have ongoing consequences. They can take time to heal, to rebuild confidence. Like I understand that real forgiveness is often slow uh, and it's really costly. I, I totally get that. But it is to say that in a meaningful way, Jesus did pay the cost of forgiveness on the cross. And that we as Christians do have some unique spiritual resources to be able to forgive a brother or sister who's hurt us because uh, we know that the cost of that forgiveness has been paid in the blood of Jesus God's son. Again, it's not a cure for everything. It's not a quick fix, but it's something. We belong to the same father the blood of Jesus God's Son was shed for all of us, uh, and we're filled with the same Spirit. I did find myself thinking once, uh, how can I find it hard to spend five minutes with that brother or sister when it seems that God the Spirit has been happy to dwell in them permanently? Like we, I think we ought to think about that when we're tempted to avoid or exclude a brother or sister altogether because they annoy us. Um, those are three thoughts. We belong to the same Father. The blood of Jesus God's Son was shed for all of us. We're filled with the same Spirit. Jesus prays that we would be united in truth and love. Uh, finally, in verses 24 to 26, Jesus prays, uh, that we might increasingly see and experience uh, God's glory and love. Notice verse 24. And Jesus says, Father, I want those uh, that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see what's on Jesus' mind right before he goes to give his life on the cross. We talked last week about Jesus' heart being wide open before us in his moment of greatest vulnerability and trouble and need 
What is on his mind? What does he long for? He longs to be with you if you're a Christian. You see that in this verse. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. That's what Jesus wants. And not just to be with him, uh, but to, he, so that you can be with him and see the fullness of his glory. He knows that in this life, uh, with our own sin and our own suffering, by the power of his spirit, we get glimpses of his glory, but not the full thing. He wants us to see everything about how wonderful and glorious he is. And not just his glory, but his father's glory too. Those verses 25 and 26, Jesus commits. He says, I've made your glory known to them and I'll keep making it known. This is Jesus' commitment. He wants us to see more and more of his Father's glory. And what's his purpose in that at the end of verse 26? In order that the love that you have for me may be in them uh, and that I myself may be in them. Jesus longs for us to see more and more of his glory and his Father's glory so that we could have a deeper and deeper sense, a deeper assurance that God the Father loves us just as he loves Jesus his Son. That the love that the Father has for the Son is in us by the power of God's Spirit. I wonder how you feel when someone says, I'll be praying for you. I think it's reasonable then uh, when weak and frail brothers and sisters like us say that to one another, sometimes we're going to let one another down. I fully confess that when I've said to someone I'll be praying for them, uh, sometimes I I forget, I'm too tired, life gets busy. Uh, It's not always a kind of lockdown guarantee that I'll pray for them. And I reckon sometimes we think Jesus might be the same, but he's not. Jesus is the one who will never fob us off. He promises to always be with us and never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is the one who never gets tired. The Lord who watches over Israel, the psalmist says, will not slumber. We get tired and forget to pray, but not Jesus. Jesus is the one who understands us better than we understand ourselves. His prayers always hit the spot. Jesus is the one who is always praying for our good. Always. You say, how can I know that? Well, just after he prayed this prayer, he gave his life for us on the cross. It's a pretty big assurance that he's seeking our good. I hope this reality that Jesus is praying for you and the glimpses we get in John 17 of what Jesus might be praying for you, I hope it gives you a sense of comfort and joy as you live your life in this world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the riches of your word. Uh, John 17 is such a, such a deep and rich and marvellous chapter. Uh, it's hard to do justice to it. I pray that by your grace uh, that some of the riches of it will have come out this afternoon. I pray in particular, Father, that we would be deeply assured that Jesus, your son, continues to pray for us, uh, that he's praying for our good, 
that he never gets tired, that he doesn't forget about us, that he prays in a way that understands us better than we understand ourselves. Father, we thank you for this wonderful assurance uh, and we pray that, uh, one, uh, that Jesus' prayers for us, uh, that they might be answered in our midst, uh, that each of us might be spiritually safe and protected and walking closely with Jesus, that we might be sanctified, uh, living lives that show that we belong uh, to God our Father and that we want to be like him. We pray, Father, that you would help, uh, that you would unite us all the more in love and truth. We pray, Father, that we would see more and more of your glory and be more and more assured of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.